Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect the disconnected to a growing relationship with God. You can connect with God, and we can help. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Happy Palm Sunday. This is like the start of a really exciting week for us. This is the start of Passion Week. We're going to culminate in Easter in seven days. So thanks for kicking off that journey with us today. Today's a really exciting message. We get a a lot of hope and excitement that we can kind of carry in the background, even as Passion Week moves on. And there's the heavier things as we go with Jesus to the cross on Good Friday. But today we get to start with his entry into Jerusalem. So Before I dive into that, though, let me tell you about titles. We as humans love titles, right? Because when we have a title, we get to have, you know, maybe some status. Um, There's nothing like a good one to, you know, boost your confidence. You know where you stand with other people. It's also a really good party trick. When you're at a party and someone asks you, what do you do? And you give them a really good title, they're like, ah, I know exactly what you do. You might be an entrepreneur, but if you say, you know, I'm a CEO of a small company, it sounds a lot more exciting. The title carries a lot of weight to it, and we get to throw them around and, you know, maybe have more responsibility under it than others. Sometimes, though, titles don't even fully encompass all of the responsibility that goes with it. For a lot of you moms, a stay-at-home mom title might not sound like a lot, but you know that there's so much more effort and work and emotion behind it than just that title. Titles have a lot of weight to it. And for me, when I was first starting my real deal job as an adult uh, in college, I was a student still, I was so excited to finally get an official title. Uh, Throughout high school, I really just mowed lawns for neighbors and didn't do a ton. So uh, when I, freshman year at uh, Ozark Christian College, I got a job in the admissions department. And I was so stoked. I'm like, this is a real deal office job. But my title, the first one they gave me was student ambassador. And there's really nothing hot or special about that at all. It's pretty, it's pretty lame. It's like just vague enough so they can give you any work that you need to do. You're kind of just the backfill, but also specific enough for tax purposes that fit the bill. So uh, that's what I had for the first little while, student ambassador. It's not really anything that gets you up out of bed every morning, but that's what I had. It was good. I did the work and all those things. Um, but then a little while later, after um, we're doing that job, I had an opportunity to step into a new role. The campus visit coordinator was moving on to something else, and they invited me to kind of step into that role. And so I got trained. She showed me all the ropes, did all the things, and I finally got to that role. But do you know what they did? They shortchanged me. Instead of campus visit coordinator, they uh, saw, you know, you're a student still, and you're also part-time, so we're going to make you the assistant campus visit coordinator, and we'll make your boss the campus visit coordinator, even though you're going to do most of the work. And it was one of those moments where I felt that instead of assistant regional manager, like assistant to the regional manager, was really what I felt. But as time went on, I finally put some weight into my work, and I, I made, uh, I think, a lot of responsibilities happen. It was good. After a few months, they realized, yeah, we should take that assistant uh, part off. And so the day when I was at my desk behind my computer and they brought out on the slip of paper um, to put in my little plaque thing, Alex Steele, campus visit coordinator, I was like, yes, this is the title I've been waiting for. It's not student ambassador. This is like the top student title you could get as a student worker. And it was exciting. The weight behind it, of like the influence, I could tell my friends and family, I am the campus visit coordinator. 
titles are really exciting. They get us jazzed up about things, and, and they do have a lot of weight. But we also know that Jesus has a ton of titles himself. We have things like the Son of God, the Lamb, uh, the Prince of Peace. We also have the Messiah. Do you know what that title means or what it entails? It has quite a bit of weight behind it. To call someone the Messiah is a pretty big deal. What does the Messiah do? What does the Messiah look like? We know. Well, in the Hebrew context, the Messiah is pretty important. In their eyes, they saw the Messiah as the one who was going to save them, liberate them, and bring them back as a people. Uh, this Messiah was going to be a descendant of David, and they were going to unite all 12 tribes of Israel and establish a universal world peace, that everything would be right, and that um, Israel would be back right with God, and they would be leading the nations to God. That was their vision of a Messiah. There were a lot of political weight, a lot of social weight and religious weight. That was their hope. If you're new with us, we've been going through um, this series called Epic, looking at the meta-narrative of Scripture. We've been hopping through all kinds of different texts. Most recently, Chris preached last week on Ezekiel and looking at Israel in exile. And Israel really, they did a lot of crazy bad stuff. And that got them kicked out, partly because God was trying to get their attention through the prophets. He was telling them, listen, I need you guys to repent. I need you to change your ways and come back to me. Um, but they didn't, and so they were sent into exile. But we also learned that God promised to them, like, I will restore you to your land. I will bring you back. And he did that. He did bring them back. But Israel in that restored state wasn't quite to the former glory as it once was. It wasn't like the days of David and, and Solomon. It was more of a remnant, a shadow of what it was. And so that's where we see that desire for the Messiah come along. The people want to go back to those, those glory days when David was king. They want the, the political weight and the social weight, the influence around them. That's their heart and desire is to be restored to that. So that's what they're looking for in a Messiah. But then we have Jesus show up on the scene. And he's not the Messiah they've been looking for. They're not the one, he's not the one that they've been expecting. In fact, most people actually miss Jesus. They didn't see him as the Messiah. And his arrival in Jerusalem showcases exactly who he is, though. And that's why we're going to study it this morning. Before we dive into the text, I want to pray over this. Because I want us to all be united and invite the Holy Spirit to help us see Jesus as the Messiah. It's, it's more than just a promise. He actually lived it. He fulfilled it. And he is the real deal. So, will you pray with me? God, thank you for this text that we're about to um, read and just as it culminates into leading us through Passion Week this week, uh, maybe see Jesus as the Messiah this morning in his entry into Jerusalem and all that comes with that. Um, open up our eyes to see why we can trust in Jesus, uh, why he leads the way uh, to saving us from our sins and reuniting us back to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Um, Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem um, throughout some of the chapters before. So just right before in chapter 20, he um, is doing some things. He teaches a little bit. Um, he healed some blind men in Jericho. And then he's also made a third prediction about his death. And then he's finally making his way with a crowd behind him from Galilee. Uh, they've been kind of going with him and cheering him on and, and announcing to people who he is. So he's really mission-focused at this point. He knows what's coming. And so we arrive on the scene in Matthew 21 when Jesus is going through a Jerusalem suburb. This is what it says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 21. 
As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and then on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. What an entrance Jesus has made. There's a lot going on there, and we're going to have to unpack it. The commotion that you can feel is, is like palpable in the text. There is chaos brewing now that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. We need to unpack this lot, so we're going to return to the very beginning of the text and kind of work our way through it and investigate different pieces that show both why Jesus is the Messiah and why coming into Jerusalem is such a big deal. So Jesus asked two of his disciples to go into the village of Bethphage, right outside of Jerusalem, to go get a donkey and her colt. Um, it's not unusual to get both. It makes a lot of sense, actually. If uh, I mean, if you're in the store with your mom and you lose your mom in the toy aisle, you're you're wandering, looking at things, and then you finally get reunited with your mom, you're you're a lot more comfortable. That that moment of being alone was kind of exciting because you're looking at the toys, but then you realize you're all alone, and so you need your mom with you. Same thing with a colt. This colt has never been ridden before, and so um, that's why the donkey, the mother, goes with them, and so the disciples are going to go get both, and so they can walk calmly down and through Jerusalem. And then I always wonder this, like the disciples, I don't know how they go get it. Like Jesus tells them to go find the, the donkey and the colt, and I'm not really sure, like you just go look around in people's yards and see. I imagine this in the modern day, if, if you're like sipping your coffee in the morning, you look out the window and you got a bunch of guys like pulling out your SUV in the driveway, like check, kicking the tires and like pulling the door handle, looking in the window. And you go out there and like, what are you doing? And you're like, we need this for Jesus. And you're like, right. I, I don't know about that. Um, so I imagine with the donkey, this, this donkey represents probably transportation or a way to get money for whoever's getting it. So it definitely takes the work of the Holy Spirit going in front of them for someone probably let them take um, two animals with them. So I don't know if I could do such a thing, but I'm glad that the Holy Spirit went before him and did it. So they have the two animals and um, grabbing them. And what's so interesting is that this actually fulfills something that uh, was said way before. If you notice in verses 4 and 5, um, there's this kind of prophetic note there where it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So is this all like planned out? Matthew seems to add this quote kind of as an editorial clause to emphasize like this is like an oracle of, of the Messiah. Like the Messiah is here. Jesus is he. Like that's the one. Um, this quote comes from Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. So I'm going to read it here to give us a little context of why Matthew is using this. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will take the chariots away from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Clearly, this Messiah character is something. I mean, they're going to have a whole kingdom, like rule this whole thing. Peace everywhere throughout the land. Sounds pretty good. He's going to be righteous and victorious. Defeat all the armies. That sounds like the kind of Messiah I can get behind. But it seems that Matthew doesn't use that whole quote, does he? He only uses the earlier part. I, I don't think that he's purposely trying to hide something or like, you know, he's trying to ignore a point, um, uh, fool us from something. No, I think he's actually trying to draw us to a very specific point about why Jesus is the Messiah is so special. Um, he selects this phrase, the earlier part, about riding on donkey, being gentle and lowly, because he wants to draw our attention to Jesus' meekness. King Jesus comes lowly and riding on a donkey. He doesn't have chariots. He has no war horses around him. He doesn't have weapons. He has no political coup or uprising planned. He just is coming as he is, lowly and in peace. I think sometimes on this side of the resurrection, we are really like gung-ho about, Jesus defeated death and sin, and this is awesome. Um, sometimes we think about all of Jesus' power and might, and all of those things are so true. However, sometimes we only rest in that victorious nature. Are you okay with the functional image of Jesus being meek and coming in on a donkey? It's quite different, and quite different from the type of leadership we see in our day and age around us. Matthew could have included all the other notes about a victorious Messiah. I mean, that's what the Jews were hoping for and looking for. And it is true. Jesus was, he is going to reign. He is going to be king and rule over everything. But that doesn't seem to be the emphasis. He specifically focuses on Jesus' meekness. So I can't help but wonder, maybe we should too. What kind of Jesus do you teach your kids about? Do you often talk about Jesus coming in meekly, riding on a donkey, what kind of Jesus do you tell your coworkers about or do you study in your devotions? Sometimes we, we can't forget about this angle because it's so important because it's defining who the Messiah is. And so this points to point number one about what is the Messiah? What's this title all about? It's that Jesus is the Messiah of meekness. It's one element of the weight behind this title. Jesus is the Messiah of meekness. Now we've got more to cover. And so the disciples they brought the colt to Jesus. They've thrown their cloaks on the colt to kind of act as a saddle. And they've brought him um, closer to Jerusalem. A large crowd has followed Jesus from Galilee. And so they are putting their cloaks down on the road in the palm branches. And so as he enters Jerusalem, they're going to like keep proclaiming his name and announce who he is. Now, Jesus riding on a colt on a path with all kinds of stuff before him is definitely a statement. You can't just do all this and not have some intention behind it. And so the crowds going in are, are proclaiming in verse 9, like, Hosanna, this is the son of David. This is causing a stir. We often think with this, it's kind of a misnomer in the story that all the people in Jerusalem are coming out and cheering with them. But it's really the crowd from Galilee that's leading this charge. The people in Jerusalem are kind of confused. They're a little freaked out. Um, Hosanna is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Hoshna, and it means like, please save us. Um, like the crowd is not exactly saying this specifically, please save us, but it's kind of like when we say hallelujah, it's kind of a, a, a term of praise and endearment to praise. Um, and so they're kind of using it like that. They're really praising, this is the son of David, he's here. Um, and it's, this is not without precedent though either. Matthew chapter 20, right before, 
actually there's someone who called Jesus the son of David earlier, and that was the two blind men who got healed in Jericho. They said, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus touched their eyes and they were healed. In our day and age, you know, titles, again, they have weight and meaning, but there are some titles that you really don't have to have the specific name attached to know what it means or who it is. When I say the president, you know exactly who I'm talking about, the weight behind that role and all the things there. Or if I said the Pope, you know exactly who that is, the weight behind that role, the influence. And so when the crowd is saying the son of David, everyone knows exactly who that is. That is the Messiah. That is the one who has been talked about earlier in the texts and the prophets. So the son of David, everyone knows what is going on. This is a big claim that the crowds who are cheering Jesus as, as he walks in are seeing. But notice, Jesus doesn't stop them. If they were incorrect, if they were saying something that wasn't true, you would think Jesus would speak up and say, nah, you should probably say something different. Or, no, I'm actually this, not that. But he doesn't. He quietly continues to ride on the donkey as they do that. And the thing is, Jerusalem does not like this one bit. The text says the whole city was stirred. Stirred you know, it might seem like pretty simple, but think stir is like alarmed. Like this is like an emergency. Like this is a level one crisis. Like something crazy is happening. We got to pay attention to this. Matthew doesn't say much more than that, but we can use some historical context clues to kind of understand the weight of why this is a big deal to be stirred, the whole city. Jerusalem already had a Jewish king of sorts with Herod. And so Herod had a lot of influence. He built the temple and we've got um, all kinds of like political and social and religious weight behind him. So for rumors to be spreading that a new Jewish king was coming in, that's, that's an issue. That word is going to spread real quickly. But it gets worse because also Jerusalem is ruled by the Romans. There is tight Roman control on the whole region. The region has had histories of unrest and chaos and the Jews have had uprising. It's just kind of a mess. And so when the Romans hear that there's someone that people are claiming is king coming in, they're also going to freak out. This word is spreading quickly, and the whole city is kind of turning into chaos. It is getting stirred. They are alarmed. This is not normal. This doesn't happen every day. So when the people in Jerusalem ask the crowd from Galilee, who is this? The crowd coming in responds by saying, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Even still, the response is not quelling the crowd, uh, the chaos and commotion. And so while Jesus is coming in meekly and while his, his priority is the cross, he's headed straight there. We also can't deny that what we see about people proclaiming him as the son of David, as the coming king, and the, the influence that has socially and politically in Jerusalem, we need to see that as the Messiah, number two, Jesus is the Messiah of a new kingdom. He is hearkening that in. He is, he is initiating God's kingdom here on earth. That's something we can't deny. After entering Jerusalem in a fashion that only Jesus could, we see him move to the temple. And so the story picks up in verse 12. Matthew 21, 12, here we go, says this. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, um, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. 
Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read uh, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. Now, this seems like a very dramatic turn of events, doesn't it? You have Jesus peacefully riding on a donkey with all kinds of crowds around him. And then he, something just ticks and he goes off in the temple and doing all these things and do healings. Like, what happened? Where, how did we get there? Uh, I think we often uh, need to think through this and think through the different elements of why Jesus feels the way he does. And we often get hung up on maybe that phrase, a den of robbers, when Jesus talks about that. And I think in our contemporary understanding, I don't think it's completely incorrect. I think there's a lot of um, like kind of uh, underhand deals going on, unfairness, um, things like that. We're definitely happy in the temple. But I think in sometimes our contemporary understanding is maybe Denverites and we're constantly looking for inequalities and things like that. We get hooked on that's why Jesus is upset. And certainly that is an element. But that's not the primary reason why Jesus is so upset and why he's making a big to-do about getting these vendors out of the temple. You see, uh, Jesus includes a line from Jeremiah 7.11 where Jeremiah speaks uh, for the Lord against the people who have done detestable things and then come back into his house. It seems that Jesus is more upset about the where that these things are happening than the how. And what's happened is that in these days, the, the temple has been this grand thing. Herod um, built this beautiful temple, and it was a big deal. Um, a later rabbi once said, It is used to be said, He who has not seen the temple of Herod has not seen a beautiful building. This place was the center of Jewish culture. They were so proud of it. It was it had so much nationalism wrapped up into it. They um, saw it both politically and socially as so critical to their, um, to their identity in addition to the religious identity. So there was so much happening here in Jewish culture, like things and ideas being shared, but also the, it became a marketplace of all kinds of things. But what happened then is that rather than a place of prayer and connecting with God, it became that marketplace. And it lost its identity. People weren't maybe going there for the purpose of connecting with God, but for other reasons. And so what Jesus saw is that this whole mess was preventing people from connecting with his Father. Um, so how did this happen? How did the Jews get to this point? Well, I think it's probably easier and slipperier slope than we might think. I think it can happen even in our very own church context, where we get distracted from what this atmosphere and place is supposed to be. Uh, I don't think we're too unfamiliar with that. It could become a social odd pretty quickly where we were comparing about these moms are cooler than those moms or we got to do this on the weekend or maybe I got this new promotion at work or uh, we're cool. Like this is kind of our spot to hang out. We don't like people from the outside. Like it can quickly become a club. It can quickly become a social hour. And that quickly then detracts from what our space is supposed to be. And that's a place to connect with God. It's a place for people to come and worship and be together and to pray. And that's kind of what had happened to the temple. It detracted from the opportunity to be in relationship with God and focus more on relationship with other people and put that as a priority. Relationship with the money and with social status and ideas. So I think this point proves to us that another thing the Messiah does, that Jesus is the Messiah for connecting with God. Jesus is the Messiah for connecting with God. He ultimately came so that we could be reunited with the Lord. And so that's why he's clearing the temple. He's trying to make space and say, no, this is not, this is all getting in the way. And it's not only that, but also you're 
cheating people and doing underhanded deals and all kinds of things. This is all getting in our way of our relationship with God. We've got to get it all out. Jesus is the Messiah for connecting with God. Now, the commotion of the temple led to more. I'm sure the religious leaders were not super pleased about Jesus doing his thing in there. But then they also get upset as he starts healing the blind and the lame that come to him. The children are even saying, Hosanna to the son of David. I mean, what a sight this must have been as everyone's doing their thing. They pro- it probably was pure chaos to the religious leaders. Um, in fact, I imagine them, uh, the religious leaders are like, oh my goodness, but the children, you got to protect the children. They're kind of the same attitude when we or our kids come home with something from school or dancing or sports practice. And they're like, I didn't want them to know that or didn't want them to learn that. I imagine the Pharisees are feeling that exact same thing. But the children, how dare you, Jesus? The thing is, though, the children are not wrong. They have actually learned something quite correct and that Jesus is very worthy of the praise. He is the son of David. In fact, Jesus' response is remarkable. He references Psalm 8.4 and says, From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. I mean, not only is he empowering, protecting the children and what they're saying, like he's like, no, they're right. Um, he also doesn't explicitly say this, but by confirming that with Psalms, he is equating the praise that God is due in Psalms to be also due to him. He is making an equal statement, and sometimes we miss that, and this would have just absolutely frustrated the religious leaders. The fact that Jesus is saying, no, I am worthy of that praise too because I am he. Jesus is God. And so I think what this tells us about the Messiah, number four, Jesus is the Messiah worthy of praise. He is the Lord. He is the King. The fact that children can declare it too, that's pretty cool. Jesus is worthy of it all. The rest of the text heads in the direction that we are often familiar with this time of year and we're going to look at this week in community groups is the Passion Week texts. Jesus is headed to the cross. That's his focus. That's where he's going. But that's precisely why he is the Messiah, the promised one, is because he was the one willing to lay down his life, to bring into a new kingdom and bring us peace and hope. Um, He is going to defeat sin and death. And that is something that we can get excited about. He's got to get there first. Um, the thing is, Messiah, Jesus, he is so unexpected. He's not here to topple the Romans with some kind of power or, or war horses and army. He's not here to establish some Jewish cultural epicenter that reunites all of the tribes and um, puts Israel back on the map. That wasn't his intention either. In fact, he was thinking even bigger than all of those things, bigger than Rome, bigger than Israel. Jesus is the best Messiah because his role as Messiah is for all people, for all time. It's a much bigger picture and different approach than anyone could have expected. So, with all that being said, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you see him as Messiah, the promised one, the one to save us and bring us back to God? In Matthew 16, 13 through 16, Dean, um, Jesus is with his disciples, and he asked Peter a really important question. He asked all the disciples an important question, but Peter responds with something very worth noting. The text says this in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do you uh, people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
Do you claim Jesus? Do you see who he is? Those with him and around him, they were able to catch on. And now us today, we have his word, we have history to look back on. So can you see these things pointing to who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah? Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, I think testifies to the whole picture, the whole story of why Jesus is here. I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10 here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, and all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Jesus the Messiah is so much more than a title. It's not something that he's aspired to. It's not something that uh, he's worked hard to get. No, he has earned it because he is the Son of God. He came and saved us from our sins and offers us new life and grace. That we get to, I just love this part of the text where it says um, that we get to be offered the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That is our Messiah. He offers that to us. So, like I said, Jesus the Messiah is so much more than a title. This is what Jesus the Messiah is for. Jesus the Messiah only has one mission, to save people from sin and reunite them with God. If you've never heard about Jesus in this way before, or maybe never even heard of him, period, I think if you're feeling it's time to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you. Jesus the Messiah is the big deal. I mean, this whole process of entering Jerusalem, I think is pure proof of what he's here to do. For those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, again, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you see him as the Messiah? You see directly in the text that the people from Galilee who followed him as disciples and, and people who were championing him, they walked with him all the way to Jerusalem and started praising him as they entered in. So are you telling people about who Jesus is? Are you championing Jesus outside of your walls? I think for us, maybe as Denverites, we're, we're really good about being driven and being independent. We also kind of like our private lives and all those things and our social images. But do you have the audacity to go outside of your walls and proclaim who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. I think if his people were able to do that, if even children were able to proclaim that Jesus is the son of David and he's here, then we, we better go do that too. Um, if children can do that, we got to do it. If we don't do it, then the rocks are going to cry out. If we don't do it, the trees will clap, the mountains will bow down. It's our job to go tell that Jesus the Messiah is here. For months, we've been um, writing names on the Pray for One board. And it's awesome. It's been so fun to see the, the board get filled up with all kinds of names. But with Easter next week, I, I can't think of a better opportunity to go tell some people on that board about who Jesus the Messiah is and why he's here. It's the perfect time to go do that. 
So maybe you don't have an opportunity with, you know, at work and, and maybe you're not sure what to do, but you can surely go grab a name that you've written down and, and text them, call them this week. I've heard some really cool stories also from you guys about conversations that happen at Target, at your gym, at um, just your workspace, about people and the Holy Spirit moving to have conversations. And so look for those this week. Be on alert. See opportunities for when you can tell people that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, also grab some Easter invite cards on your way out. Have those ready because you never know when that will be. I'm not saying that because we want to bolster our numbers, make our averages look good, and the crowd that we gather on Easter. That's not about it. Because we're here because we believe that God loves the ones, even those who are far from him. And so we want to go search for those people too. We want to tell them that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's here to save us. So let's join Jesus on mission to save people from sin and reunite them with God. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, seeing us and, and saving us. Lord, you, um, you sent your son to us, your one and only son, and he was the Messiah that we needed. We might not have seen him at first. It was probably pretty easy for um, the Jews to not understand, but as we align and as we see what your text says, we see that Jesus is the one that has been promised, that we've been looking for. May we go about our week and rest in that. May we search for Jesus in uh, the Passion Week text. May we reflect on Jesus as the Messiah as we approach Easter. May we be emboldened to go tell people about Jesus as the Messiah. That he is here to save us from our sin and to reunite us back to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.